Hey everyone, this is Justin, and welcome to the Genesis Astronomy Podcast. This show focuses primarily on amateur astronomy topics from a biblical worldview. My hope is to encourage listeners to examine their worldview in light of what the Bible teaches, as well as provide practical tips and resources to help anyone interested in exploring amateur astronomy further. Thanks for tuning in. Hi everyone, it's Justin, and welcome back to the Genesis Astronomy Podcast. We are on episode 3 today. I am really excited for this episode because we're going to start to get into some fun stuff. I've really enjoyed, I have to say, laying the basic biblical foundation for this podcast in the previous two episodes. So if you haven't listened to those yet, be sure to go back and check them out. So today we're going to talk about several topics, and really they're all going to deal with how to get started in observational astronomy. So we're going to talk about selecting your equipment, what options you have, as well as actually finding a good night and a good location to get out and even view the night sky. So this is going to include factors like weather conditions and light pollution primarily. And on a side note, I think I mentioned this before, but I could probably spend an entire episode just on light pollution. But I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that. So let's get to it. So there are several different ways to observe the night sky. Our own eyes are really the first step. If you don't already, I encourage you to look up more often on a clear night and just allow yourself to explore visually what you can see where you're at. As far as equipment is concerned, you don't even have to start with a telescope. Telescopes can be a bit of an investment, although there are plenty of good quality starter scopes out there that you will get a lot of use out of. But even a decent pair of binoculars, if you've got some of those, or a tripod that you can uh, attach those to, that will significantly in increase what you're able to see. Not to mention that there are some things that we will talk about that are perhaps best viewed with binoculars rather than a telescope. And you may be surprised to find out what at least one of those things happens to be. So when it comes to selecting binoculars, if you want to go the binocular route, if you've already got a pair, many people do, for hunting or bird watching or whatever, Feel free to use those as they'll work just fine, especially getting started. Um, I highly recommend getting a tripod also if you don't already have one, as this is going to take away a lot of the kind of the shaky hand stuff from holding your binoculars pointed up towards the sky for so long. I would also recommend considering a pair of astronomy specific binoculars by a brand such as um, Celestron or Orion. There are other good brands but those are just kind of the two that I'm immediately familiar with that immediately come to my mind when I think of these brands. Uh, my college roommate actually bought a pair of Celestron binoculars, and we were both quite impressed with what we could see with those, from the brightest four moons of Jupiter to the enormous but very faint and dispersed Andromeda galaxy. And in my opinion, binoculars are quite possibly the best way to view it, the Andromeda galaxy, that is. Its angular size is approximately equal to that of six full moons lined up next to each other. It's huge. Now the problem is that it's so much fainter and spread out than the moon that you just don't really start to be able to see it until you can get away from city lights. More on light pollution and its annoying effects just a little bit later in the show. When you're ready to look at purchasing a telescope, I would highly recommend doing some research first. Think about things like portability, size, aperture, type of telescope, etc. What are you looking to be able to do? Um, for example, my starter scope, which I bought 
probably at least 15 years ago now, probably more than that. Um, it's an Orion Space Probe 130EQ reflector. And I actually ordered it straight out of an Orion catalog. And interestingly enough, this same model, you could still get it today. And it's actually more expensive now than it was then, which is really interesting to me. Um, I don't know if they've upgraded anything versus before. I kind of looked at it briefly, and it looked like it's the same, essentially the same setup. But I didn't notice anything um, immediately different about it. Um, so I actually still have that starter telescope, and I've occasionally used it, although right now I mostly prefer um, the uh, Apertura 10-inch Dobsonian that I have um, that I bought a little bit more recently. And it is larger and quite a bit heavier, but I actually find it easier and quicker to set up outside. Um, it's literally just a, um, it's a base that spins um, all the way around 360 degrees, and you literally basically mount the large tube on top of it. And I have it balanced and, and counterweighted well, so it's, you know, all that stuff figured out already, so it's not a problem at all. Um, all right, so there are tons of options for starter scopes, and many of them are good options. The Orion one that I mentioned and still have, I would totally, absolutely recommend that one. Um, there's even actually, I think, a shorter tube available um, version of that with a shorter tube available, which might actually be a little bit easier to transport because it might be a little bit smaller. Um, the one I have, the tube is probably right around three, three to three and a half feet long, I want to say. Um, so, and the one that I saw that looks like a shorter tube looks to be a little bit shorter than that. Um, Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the main types of telescopes that are out there that you can begin to choose from and that you can start to look through. So from a starter scope perspective, I would say really that you have two or three main types, although in reality there are more. Uh, but the main three that I would mention are Newtonian reflectors, Dobsonians, and refractors. The Orion Space Probe Telescope that I mentioned is a Newtonian reflector. Um, these are the telescopes that have a long tube that is open at one end and is composed of a primary and secondary mirror and your eyepiece is kind of towards actually towards the front end of the telescope or the open end of the telescope where the secondary mirror is actually mounted and um, angled at a 45 degree angle just inside the tube to reflect the um, the image coming from the um, the primary mirror into your eyepiece so that you can view it so Dobsonians are the second type. Um, they're essentially this. Also, there are some differences. Um, the telescope mounts are considered um, what's called alt-azimuth, and I think there are some optical variations also. Um, for these types, when you, when you work with a Dobsonian, well, I guess really any telescope, to be honest, but um, especially with these guys, aperture is king. Okay, a nickname that I've heard for Dobsonians is the light bucket. These things are all about light gathering power. They're all about being able to view um, faint and diffuse uh, deep sky objects like galaxies and nebulae and things like that. Um, and I can, you know, I can vouch for the one that I have that they do a, they do a good job of that, especially the ones with the larger apertures. Um, the other type um, that you have that's an option are refractors. 
um, and they actually use a lens system. Um, so kind of the way they're set up, apertures maybe not maybe not as big a deal. I think it's still it's still certainly an important factor. Um, but with refractors, larger apertures tend to get expensive very quickly, you'll find. And that's, I think, due to the cost of manufacturing the larger lens systems, you know, as you get larger and larger. Um, so with your Dobsonians, your Newtonians, it's, it's mostly about the light gathering power of your primary mirror. And so while both of those are great types of telescopes, personally, I would recommend um, probably, probably a reflector as a starter. Um, something like the Orion scope that I, that I have, I would definitely recommend that. Um, as you get further into it, if you find you really enjoy it, then, you know, then maybe upgrade to a larger Dobsonian as you start to learn your way around the sky. Um, especially if you want to be able to see those faint deep sky objects like galaxies or nebulae. Dobsonians can be excellent for those. Um, you also have another kind, um, and they're really split into two subkinds, but they're called Cassegrain telescopes. And these are, they're a little bit different. They're actually, they're actually kind of two main types that I'm aware of. There's Schmidt Cassegrain, there's Makotsov um, Cassegrain, and I'm not aware of all of the, the nuances between the two. Um, and these are a little bit different design than the reflectors, although um, there are some similarities um, in the way they work. They're a little bit more um, complex, uh, potentially from what I understand. And what they allow is they allow for longer focal lengths. If I understand correctly, they allow for longer focal lengths in, um, in a smaller tube. So you'll find that you have some pretty decently long focal length um, casting grain telescopes, but the tubes aren't long, you know, like potentially getting to the point of being prohibitively long. So because you, you can have a, uh, a casting grain telescope that's an 8 or 10 inch aperture, and it's not, you know, if you've got a 10 inch Dobsonian, like what I have, the tube is probably at least four and a half feet long. I mean, yeah, at least at least four and a half feet long, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, and these tubes on these eight or 10 inch um, casting grains are much, uh, you know, they're maybe like 18 to 24 inches long or something like that. So um, those are certainly an option. I do think they're maybe a little bit more complex and maybe not as user friendly for, um, for a starter scope. So uh, that's that's my opinion, at least on it. There might be others out there that have um, different opinions, and, and I think it's harder to also find those types of telescopes at a more entry level price. So um, we may talk about those at another time, uh, but not maybe maybe not within the context of starter scopes. Okay. So let's say you've picked out a scope and you've set it all up, and now you're ready to do some planet galaxy star cluster hunting, right? Not so fast. There are some additional factors to consider. I mean, sure, you could take your scope out and set it up and just start pointing it at random stuff, and that can be fun for a little bit. It is. But you can only get so far pointing it at naked eye stuff that you can easily see on a clear night away from city lights. The great thing is, oftentimes when you buy a starter scope, you'll get a free copy of some software like Stellarium or Starry Night Pro, which is what I currently use, or something like that, which is really great. You can install these on your computer and pour through the different star maps and all the stuff to see what's located where, really on any given night, any time of year, and this can really also help you to learn your way through the different constellations. So I really recommend spending some time 
doing that, but then also doing some visual observing, you know, maybe without a telescope to sort of begin to match what you're seeing in your star maps and your software to what you actually see in the sky. Because it's the scale, the scale is a little bit different, you know, when you're looking at something on a computer screen, you know, that is obviously not, you know, quite the sort of dome shape of the sky, if you will, versus when you get out there, um, you know, unless you have your own planetarium in your home or something, then, you know, you're pretty much set probably, but I doubt it, right? <laughs> um, all right, so let's talk, let's, let's shift a little bit to the namesake of this episode, Chasing Starry Nights. Depending on where you live, finding a good clear night may be easy. Other places it may be difficult. However, if you want to be able to see the most amount of detail on planets, or be able to make out the faintest galaxies, there are two other factors to consider. Seeing and transparency. The sky may be clear, but either or both of these two items may be abysmal, leading to an underwhelming and even disappointing experience. And that's why it's a great idea to find an astronomy forecast for your area. Personally, I like to use the one at cleardarksky.com. It's a great website, has a ton of different sites um, in its database. And a lot of times what you can just do is you can just type into a search engine, Google or whatever search engine you use, you know, the city or, you know, the town nearest to you, and then followed by a clear sky chart. And typically one of the first results are going to be a location that's close to you that's from this cleardarksky.com website. And so this, this site shows roughly a three-day forecast of the different conditions that are pertinent to astronomical viewing, um, including seeing and transparency. Um, and also have things like sky brightness when you're going through the different phases of the moon and temperature and wind speeds and things like that. That can also be factors, typically smaller, but they can be. Um, it'll also tell you that um, good or excellent seeing is really needed for best viewing of planetary detail and above average transparency is needed to really make out low contrast objects like distant galaxies. Um, you can have a combination of kind of either or where seeing is a little bit more important for planetary viewing and you can have poor transparency but good seeing and you can do some good planet observation and then vice versa you may have poor seeing but good transparency and so it may not really um, negatively, negatively affect your view of galaxies or nebulae too much or any, anything that's a little bit more faint um, low contrast all right you knew we were going to come to it at some point. So let's talk about it. Light pollution. I'm going to try to give this as little air time as possible. But, but I've, I've, you know, and, and maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. Maybe, maybe it's just me. But I could spend a really long time talking about this. But I will sum it up with this, as far as light pollution is concerned. If you live in a big city... Your telescope viewing experiences will probably be a lot less exciting and impressive than if you live well outside those bright city lights. So yeah, if you if you live in New York City or LA, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sure there are places that you can hopefully get away to that aren't that far away, that are maybe a little bit better than being smack dab in the center of the city. And not that you can't see anything, by the way. It's just you're going to be a bit more limited on some of the fainter stuff. 
Um, you can certainly still view the moon with your telescope. You can view planets. I mean, you can do a lot of the brighter objects with probably very little issue, I would imagine. Um, but you want you start talking about fainter stuff, low contrast stuff. You know, that's going to be hard to do. I do I do think there are light pollution aiding filters out there for telescopes that you can get. But honestly, to tell you the truth, I don't know a lot about those. Um, so there are a couple of good sources that you could go to for actual light pollution maps, which, yes, they do have those. So lightpollutionmap.info is one of them. Um, and the other one, actually, you can find on Clear Dark Sky's website, the cleardarksky.com website. And I actually like the latter because it also has a chart below it describing what is referred to as the Bortle scale. This is a light pollution scale scoring regions on the map from basically a class 1 to a class 9, with 9 being something like, you know, Times Square in New York City. Um, although that may actually be a 10, I don't know. Um, if you look at the map, the 9, the, the white um, corresponding color is all of Manhattan, essentially, and really kind of the area right around it. But the chart gives you a rough idea of what each level is like. And I will tell you, it is quite helpful. When I started really getting into all this, I lived in Huntsville, Alabama, which is like an 8, probably a high 8 or a low 9, which corresponds to the color um, gray or white on the map. Um, and it goes, by the way, the map starts at white is the worst, and it goes all the way down to black. And so it goes it goes kind of through all the different colors. It starts with white, goes to gray, goes to red, orange, yellow, green, blue, kind of a dark gray, and then black. And the black is the best, the white is not. Um, so now, um, like I was saying, I lived in Huntsville, Alabama, which is like a high 8, low 9. Now I live in Northwest Ohio, which um, the color, the corresponding color there is a dark yellow. It's about a 4.5. So it's kind of right in the middle of the scale. Just, just, just going from the middle of the scale up to there is a big, big difference. Just when you're standing on the ground looking up, um, there is so much, you'll find there is so much more visible. Just, just standing here versus standing there. Um, and honestly, I've, I've observed really in as low as about a three, I would say, just kind of the light blue to blue. Um, and that was that, even at that level, that was highly rewarding with, and that was with my, that wasn't with my, um, larger Dobsonian. That was with my, um, Orion starter scope. And that was, that was quite, quite rewarding even. And so, you know, if you really work at it, you can even find better places than that. But honestly, if you live in the U S east of the Mississippi, there aren't a lot of places better than that. I mean, you'll have to hike like into the Adirondacks of upstate New York or wind your way through the central Appalachians in West Virginia to find places that are darker sky than that. Um, unless you can make your way up to Michigan's Upper Peninsula or northern Wisconsin. There's some areas up there, um, according to the map, that look pretty dark and pretty, pretty promising um, with some good potential there. So oftentimes you've also got um, local astronomy clubs that may hold star parties at local dark sites, and those can be a lot of fun. They're a great great place to learn things, and for Christians, really, maybe even an opportunity for ministry. Um, you know, having built a strong biblical worldview beforehand can really help you stand in those places where you may feel a little bit alone in your faith. 
And that's why I think the first two episodes of this podcast are so important to work through the process of thinking about those things and coming to a point of being confident in some of those less comfortable places where sometimes you might be the only believer present. Because that's, that's not an easy place to be. I mean, that can be, that can be a little bit stressful and a little bit pressure-filled because it's like, how do, you, how do you talk to a group of people that you may very well know are very opposed to the worldview that you hold? And, you know, as I've, as I've mentioned before, it really all comes down to worldview and presuppositions, you know, especially with this stuff. And, you know, but you can, you can stand strong in that, the, the understanding and the knowledge that that's what it comes down to, that, you know, you may be the only one in this place that has the worldview that you do, but it's because you start in a different place. It's not because you're stupid. It's not because you're uneducated. It's not because you deny science or don't believe in science. It's because you have a different foundational starting point. And really, I mean, let's be honest, your foundation is better. Now, they might not agree with that opinion. They may not agree with that statement. But I think you can know that and you can trust in your own heart and your own mind that it is. So, guys, that's it for this episode. Um, As always, thanks for joining me. I'm really excited for this journey to continue with our next episode, where I hope to continue our discussion from here. There's lots more to talk about, and I hope that you'll join me as we continue. We'll get into it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I could just, I could spend all kinds of time talking about these subjects, and they're just, they're a lot of fun, and I mean, you can just, you can play around with it, you can experiment, and, and it can be this great adventure. So again, hope you'll continue to join me on this Um, as we get into our next episode. See you then.